we just needed to start to challenge some of those conscious and unconscious biases, I think, that just been continuing and, and just start to call people out a bit more. G'day and welcome to episode 70 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve. And as always, thank you for taking the time to join us this week. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and extend my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to extend those respects to the traditional owners wherever you may be and wherever you're listening. I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. To find out more and check out their latest listings, head to www.lawd.com.au. Karuna Wright's family history goes back more than 175 years, where they've always been farming in South Australia's McLaren Vale. The vineyards have always been home, from her childhood armed with an ice cream container on her head to protect her from the swooping birds, to nowadays living in the family home that has been home for more than six generations, and having her kids help them out in the vineyard. Karina's story, like so many others, traverses many chapters, from wanting to be a lawyer through high school, to then discovering her love for viticulture. It ultimately ended up seeing her take her studies to California to learn alongside some of the best minds globally. In today's chat, I wanted to understand a little bit more about the legacy that comes with such a strong family history, not just in a community, but the expectation that comes with it as well. The process behind going out and creating their own brand and that value add, and some of her learnings and mentors along the way. Enjoy the chat. Firstly, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. It's, it's awesome to have you here as part of the Antola series. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I'd love to start off just by understanding a little bit about, well, I guess you're in the, the freedom part of the world in, in South Australia. Can you tell me a little bit about your pocket um, in McLaren Vale in South Australia? Has it always been home for you? Is this, are you still in the, the same house as where you grew up? Yeah, well, no, I'm actually, this is how sad I am. I, I'm, I'm actually in my, you know, my grandparents' house that my mum grew up in and um, I'm still here. So, and I, um, our family have actually been on this property for six generations. So it's a sort of long time uh, farming property, uh, starting off with mixed farming, which included grapevines, but now is pretty much almost 100% grapevines. Um but yeah, I did. I have lived away for more than ten years. I lived away, so but uh, yeah, the calling was too strong. Tell me, as a, as a kid growing up in the wine industry, was was it of interest to you? What was it like? Were you were you flat out and put to work from a very young age, or what did the childhood look like for you, Karina? <laughs> oh yeah, I um, my grand used to send me off down the driveway with a. Um, ice cream container on my head um, that had she drawn eyes in the top so that when I was out in the vineyard, um, you know, cleaning drippers or whatever, the, the magpies wouldn't swoop me. <laughs> so um, it's, a, it's a lovely vision. Uh, no, yeah, we've, uh, I suppose I did look past it for a long time. I wanted to be a lawyer. I, agriculture was always something I was really interested in. I kind of wanted to be in agricultural law. I don't know where that's, whether that's even a thing, but that's what, you know, somehow that was what I was thinking about. And then um, I travelled overseas and, you know, like we all do, you have one of those sort of epiphanies and you realise, you know, the things that have been right in front of your face 
um, you know, is probably where the most opportunity and the most excitement is. And it's also part of your DNA. Um, and so, you know, instead of thinking that the grass was greener elsewhere, I, I came back home and really um, started chatting in a stronger way with my grandpa and my uncles and to sort of see, you know, how about we start our own wine label? We were grape growers at that time, but we didn't have our own label. This is in sort of the early 1990s. And um, they were pretty keen. My grandpa in particular was very keen. He really wanted to have some wine to swap with his bowls mates and uh, show off. So um, he sort of let me have some fruit and I, we talked a local winemaker into sort of hosting me by giving them some fruit as well. And um, yeah, Oliver's Taranga Vineyards wine label was born. It's incredible. I'd love to jump back a couple of steps. So you mentioned this, there was this idea of going and doing law and in particular ag law, which is, is a profession. People do that. What, what was it that you going through, uh, going through school and, and looking at university that you were looking to study and, and I guess, yeah, agriculture seems like it was, was part of it, but it wasn't kind of the primary focus at those stages. Yeah, I think, well, you know, there was a little bit of girls don't back, go back onto the farm. I think there was a little element of that. Like my mum, you know, sort of wasn't really ever able to go back onto the farm. Um, and, you know, that was because she was a girl, A, but also because it probably couldn't, uh, the farm couldn't uh, sustain, you know, more families in it, I suppose. But um, so I probably just overlooked it. And then there's also that element of, um, you know, do I have the skills to be, you know, a winemaker and bring another string to the bow of, of our family property and, you know, enable us to, you know, still be custodians of the land, you know, sort of moving forward, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I don't know what the uh, agriculture part of it was. I think it was I just wanted to be outside. Like, you know, for a little moment there I was like, oh, do I want to do, you know, be an accountant or something? And, you know, the idea of wearing a suit and sitting inside um, all day, drives me you know I just don't like that I like to have lots of different things happening keeping busy yeah and and you know being outside and inside and and you know thinking you know doing strategic sort of work as well as marketing and branding work as well as you know physical work as well as um you know agricultural and you know sustainability work and all of that sort of stuff and then advocacy you know for the industry I kind of like to um, <laughs> but my nose into everything, really. Well, I'm just thinking. Someone <laughs> told me the other day, which I hadn't even put into numbers. They're like, "Oh, you know, there's 168 hours in a week, Ollie." And I was like, "Yeah, right." Well, it sounds like, Karina, that you've got a few more than everyone else, or somehow you <laughs> you're either very efficient or you're prioritising things slightly differently. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am efficient. That is true. Yeah, I am efficient. <laughs> oh, that's good. So. Tell me a little bit more about the overseas escapades. Where, whereabouts did you head to and what were you doing? Uh, yeah, so I did, um, first of all, just did the normal backpacking that, you know, everyone does, Europe and, you know, saw, saw a bit of Europe and stuff. But then um, I ended up doing an exchange to UC Davis in California, so University of California Davis, which is a, a, actually an agricultural-focused um, university, I suppose, and in particular for wine science. Um, they also do veterinary science and stuff like that over there. Um, so I lived over there for a year and then worked with um, Gallo Sonoma, which is um, one of the bigger sort of, or well, the biggest, I think, probably in the world, <laughs> winery, um, uh, family wine, family-owned winery um, over there in their sort of one of their smaller wineries. So I spend a bit of time living over there. 
was it planned or like was this the I guess heading heading overseas was there a bit of a plan you're going to go run around for a few years have a bit of fun and then heading to UC Davis you're actually the second person as part of the Antola series uh, Randall Wilshire headed over to UC Davis for oh, there you go. 12 months as well it's an yeah. interesting part of the world but I guess yeah in that um well in the vineyard space or horticulture space Cali um has a has a very high reputation was, yes. was this was it part of a a broader plan of yours that you kind of had brewing underneath or was it just following your nose? A little bit. I found out that there was scholarship offerings. So Adelaide University, you could do a scholarship to do a year exchange and UC Davis was one of those universities you could do an exchange for. And you basically just had to apply and you know, have good grades or whatever. And then I was also lucky enough, I was doing working for uh, the old South Corp, which is Treasury Wine Estates now, in their um, grow liaison um, space. So each vintage I would work for them, um, you know, coordinating all of the grapes to be picked and, and harvested and everything and, and heading up to their sites up in New Yorkta. Um, and they, uh, they actually sponsored me as well, gave me a scholarship as well. So they gave me sort of the money to go over there and the university gave me the position. And so I went, hell yes. Flat out and into it. It's um, <laughs> it's cool. It was incredible. incredible what, what was your favorite favorite part of yeah? I guess engulfing or putting yourself in studying um, viticulture internationally. Um, at that time, UC Davis was a much more international course than what Australian you know, university was. So we had you know a few New Zealanders and maybe a, maybe a South African at that time. You know when I was going through uni, whereas um, at Davis, you know there were people from Israel, there were Japanese, there were you know South American and lots of European um, students as well. So that part was really incredible. I also did this amazing subject which was called Vineyard Development and Establishment, and it was run by this guy called Nick Dacuzlian, who's you know, a real legend um, in the industry in California. Um, and he used, we basically did road trips every weekend. So the, the premise of the course was you, you had to pick a, a, basically a plot of land and then go through all of the climatic data and all of the soil data and all that sort of stuff and come up with, you know, what you would do in that vineyard and why and justify everything. Anyways, that part, who cares? It was the road trips, you know, and we went out to, and we got hosted by, and it was only, you know, 12 of us in the class or something, you know, really small. We got hosted by all these amazing vignerons all over the, you know, California, um, everything from table grapes all the way through to, you know, wine grapes. And um, it was just the most amazing immersion into the regions over there. Um, and I think also it served me well living over there you know, when you go to market your wines and export your wines to the US, you know, I understand the culture and stuff over there as well. So that's always been, always stuck with me. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www dot rabobank.com.au 
and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. It's a, f- a fascinating thing, I think, well, I guess in your circle, it's viticulture, but kind of agriculture more broadly. It's the one, it's globally relevant, but two, it's it's just incredibly fascinating as you start to learn about different people's approaches and I, and I guess what's in, important to them. Was there was there any stark realisations where you think in Australia, here's the conversation we're having, and then someone from Israel or South Africa or wherever it is, somewhere else in the world, um, comes up with something and you think, it's never even been on my radar. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it just it just made the world so much wider. You know, it's, you know, so I'm worrying here, say, about um, irrigation and water and you know access to water here and heat waves and things like that. And then you've got someone who's you know farming a viticulturist in or growing grapes in 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 you know um, the UK and they can't get enough water off of their vineyard, you know, and uh, they've got to put in tile drains and, you know, all sorts of things. And it's just, it's, you know, that whole um, just realising the the real vast diversity that there is, um, which I think was, you know, amazing. Um, and, Australia, and also the difference for us, you know, um, in terms of labour, um, you know, labour in California, um is uh, still, you know, primarily Mexican labour and, you know, those differences in how vineyard labour um, and, you know, we, we tend to be more mechanised over here. Mm-hmm. We don't really have the labour force and we can't afford the labour force. Um, so, yeah, the differences in mechanisation, yeah, it was yeah, incredibly interesting. It's, um, it's really cool. So I, I'd, I'd love to, I'm guessing this is the part where coming home starts to come in, but... Jumping away from that. So your family came from Scotland, um, as you mentioned, your sixth generation. So back in 1839, which is just in- incredible to kind of have that legacy behind yeah. you. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, incredible. They, yeah, I mean, they bought the place sight unseen um, and they bought it in South Australia, obviously non-penal colony. So it was um, basically it all got gifted to this guy called George Fife Angus and the, who started the South Australian company. And so they bought the land sight unseen off of George Fife Angus, um, who was establishing South Australia in sort of 1836, so pretty early days. And just incredible, incredible to me that they, first of all, came across, hadn't seen the place, um, you know, family law is, you know, he had to, dig all day and all night to, before he hit an aquifer to, you know, get water. Um, you know, they built quite a nice family homestead eventually. They had 10 children, you know, three of which died young, while all, the, all the while cleaning, clearing the land, um, you know, subsistence farming, I suppose. So everything from uh, cropping, you know, sheep, cattle, fruit trees, grapevines, um, all the rest. Yeah, they sort of pretty much did everything, and um, and also you know judging, making wine, and and judging at the national, uh, not national, but the local wine shows, your little agricultural society shows. You know, they were the they were the judge of the of the wines sometimes, and never won anything, but uh, did did win once the best looking bunch of grapes in about in about eighteen fifties. So that's pretty good, and. Uh, he was also like the um, uh, the cropping, the judge of the cropping, I don't know, how the, <laughs> the tractor driving or something as well. So <laughs> There you go. How funny is that? <laughs> but, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty nice to be, you know, a custodian of, of here. I'd love to go just something, I guess, which I'm curious about. So do you, do you feel pressure 
having such such a big legacy behind you that yeah the this sense of responsibility that you need to make it work and will Corinna be the first generation potentially that is faces challenges up. Yeah, <laughs> I was dancing around it <laughs> <laughs> yes um I think that's probably though where I've been really lucky because um my cousins uh, are also in the business with me so um and we've all got a very similar focus in terms of what we knew was you know it's a three you know sort of a approximately 300 acre vineyard um it's it can um you know you could have a staff you know just a running staff of the vineyard side of it but what the wine business brings to it is actually the ability to employ more family members moving forward and also another income stream you know value add income stream and I think that's probably been key um I don't know if we were thinking about it for that real long term, you know, that, but it was just one of the, one of the ways that we can see that we can keep the property, you know, for the six, for the next six generations, hopefully, and, and, you know, pass it on in a better way to which we've found it perhaps. And also with, with more opportunities for family members in other parts of the business, you know, now, now things like tourism are coming into play, um, you know, we're just expanding our cellar door and there's food offerings and all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot um, more room than just tractor drivers, <laughs> I suppose, um, you know, in the, in the family business. So that's been really key for us. At the very beginning, you said you mentioned um, you, you went to your grandpa and your uncles when you were talking about coming home. What, what was the impetus behind creating your own brand? Was it your way of getting into the family business? Um, it sort of ended up being that way, but I think it was grandpa just wanted, he wanted to have more wine to be able to swap with his mates, really. He, he um, I think there was also a, a, a bit of a, we're pretty competitive family. Um, I'm like the odd one out. I'm like the only non, non particularly good sporty one. All the rest of them are like absolute guns at whatever they do. So, <laughs> you know, the local and, and our family sort of, you know, set up the local um, football clubs and and uh, associations and all sorts of stuff. We just um, my great grandfather just got a life uh, life membership medal for the local um, football clubs. But anyways, um, they're all absolute guns and so super competitive. And I think they just wanted to see their own name on a on a wine. And you know, our, our, our grapes have been going into some really you know really high end wines. So we provide. Um, Shiraz Penfolds, um, and often um, in we're in their Grange Growers Club, so often our fruit goes into Grange, which is pretty much, you know, the pinnacle um, of grape production. Um, so, you know, very lucky to do that. And then other lots of other, you know, very high-end brands as well with local wineries. And so I think we just wanted to be able to, you know, brand not only uh, you know have a wine brand but also brand the vineyard you know a lot of i think this is one of the things that farming in general you know you just use as it left your farm gate you didn't need to give it worry you know you didn't need to worry about it and it was just done and gone and see you later and you didn't you know they were your, you know who you were selling it to was almost your mortal enemy because you know they were setting your prices and you know all that sort of stuff but, you know, realising that if you can brand your vineyard and then people start coming to you. And, and, and so it was actually probably pretty fortuitous that they sort of saw things that way, yeah. It's, a, it's very progressive of, of you, your grandpa. And, and I guess one thing which you very quickly just glossed over there was 
getting it into Penfold Shiraz, but also into their grange, which as a wine grower, getting it in once, uh, I think is maybe a life achievement for many. But um, the last thing I read was that you guys have achieved that 14 times, which is just incredible. Yeah, a few, few more now, but yes, yeah. <laughs> wow. So how, how many times is it now? Uh, I think it's about 16, yeah. yeah. A couple of couple of triple crowns, which is when you get it in three years in a row as well. So, yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. In terms of building the brand, I'd love to know from, so building Oliver's Tarango wines from the ground up, what, what did it look like initially? And I guess with the benefit of hindsight of, of how it's come to be, has it, has it been fairly clear since day one or has it, yeah, what was the intention starting off? Uh, no, I suppose it was super small. I was working for um, South Corp and, and sort of travelling around the different regions working for them. So I worked in Mildura at Lindemans and um, at Penfolds and Sepplesfield and a number of other sites. And while I was sort of doing Oliver's um, part-time, uh, you know, it was super small volumes in one wine, uh, just a Shiraz. Uh, and my uncle and aunt sort of kept everything going back of house. You know, we did a little newsletter and sold it, you know, all at once type thing. And sometimes people came to their house to have a taste, but, you know, it was, you know, very, very small. Um, and then I suppose as my skills grew winemaking-wise um, externally, um, and then we began to realise what sort of opportunities we had. We had an old cottage um, that was built in the 1850s by the family um, that we had a potential to, you know, sort of open up as a cellar door. I suppose it just, I was sort of having kids along the way and eventually um, when Foster's bought out Southcorp, um, I put my hand up for a redundancy and um, we decided that that was the point to make the jump in uh, 2004 and then, yeah, we worked towards opening a cellar door in 2007 and um, the wine number of wines expanded um, as well. So, yeah, and now it's yeah, pretty bustling, um, pretty bustling business. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with Antola Trading. Owned and designed in Outback Australia, Antola have always been known for making some of the best quality work shirts money can buy. But their latest collection is extra special. As you're probably well aware now, Antola's founder, Alicia McClymouth, has chosen 23 men and women who she sees are doing incredible things across regional and rural Australia as the Antola ambassadors. And we're here to tell their story through the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Made from 100% cotton, the shirts are perfect for those long hours in the sun and a hard day's work. And what's more, with every purchase of their new season's kids' shirt, Entola will donate $2 to the Ronald McDonald House Charity in Brisbane to help those families who have to travel far in order to help sick kids. You can find out more at www.entolatrading.com. In terms of that making the jump from, I'm not going to say the cushy corporate role, but the <laughs> yeah, being the, the backing of a big company to then throwing all the eggs in one basket as such, was it... Was it something which, yeah, was kind of like, well, let's fly by the seam of our pants and, and see where it goes? Yeah, I can remember when I sent the, um, you know, the email, you know, this is where you can find me now sort of thing around to all of my um, staff. 
they, I mean, all of my friends in the in the corporate world, a couple of them emailed me back and said, um, if it's not as scary as, as you think it's going to be, can you let me know? <laughs> um, um, you know, I had a, a very, I was very lucky to have a lot of family support. I mean, you know, I couldn't have done it by myself and, you know, the, 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 having the land here and the access to, you know, fruit, um, you know, super key. Um, and then family members who've been able to, you know, work and, and support in and, and join the business and, and help it flourish has been amazing. But yeah, um, it, it, more so, I think my biggest worry was, you know, in, in corporate winemaking, you've got so many other brains around the table. And, you know, when coming into Oliver's Taranga, you know, I was really the winemaker, I'm the winemaking person and still am. So um, I think that's what um, led me to make sure that I did a lot of industry things and didn't sort of just get stuck in my own little headspace and, you know, so doing lots of wine judging, um, uh, participating on national and, and um, you know, local boards, um, that sort of stuff. So that I stayed, you know, you still got your brain's trust are all still out there, I suppose. And yeah. That was the big, that was the biggest risk. Yeah. Yeah. Just not at the exact same table. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You've mentioned the family multiple times and I think it shows, or it's so cool to see how tight knit you obviously all are. In terms of role models and people outside that business, and particularly as a female in the wine industry, um, who who were your your cheerleaders, supporters, and mentors the whole way through through your career? Yeah, I had I actually had some really great mentors within Southcorp. Back in the day, there's a guy called Peter Taylor who was um, sort of chief red or something like that. They called him Group Group Red or something winemaker, and um, he really mentored me through um, when I was working into Southcorp and and externally, to be honest. Um, and then it's just been I've just been really inspired by people having a crack. So um, lots of other people who've sort of gone out on their own and are you know working really hard. People like. Um, Sue Bell and just creating these really like authentic businesses. Um, Sue Bell's down in, in Coonawarra, a business called Bellwether. Um, I've got, uh, yeah, lots of, uh, another friend down, Sam Conyu, who's down in Tasmania, Stargazer. Um, you know, they've gone out on their own. They're doing wines and, and doing things in a way that are super authentic to them and, uh, you know, working really hard. And um, I really respect that. Um, and then I've also, I think you've already interviewed my friend Jane, Jane Thompson. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's incredible. So um, I managed to band together with her with the Women in Wine uh, Awards that she um, dreamt up uh, in the early days. And, um, yeah, so she's been, I mean, she's a whirlwind and a whirlwind of energy and she's been amazing. <laughs> So, so that sort of exposed me to loads of, um, you know, incredible people within the industry that, you know, you just get more and more and more inspired by. You're taking on the, the wine industry in the sense of, um, and alongside Jane, really advocating for the role of women and, and celebrating it and, and trying to push the industry to become more diverse. Um, <laughs> what, yeah, from an outsider's point of view, um, can you tell me more? about kind of the dynamics of the wine industry like yeah what what's the demographic as such and who makes it up today 
Yeah, so unfortunately, production, winemaking, and viticulture, they're, they're, we're sort of sitting at ten percent women and um, and falling. So you know that is um, uh, that got that's unacceptable. <laughs> um, mm. Not just it's just uh, you know just all of that brain drain that we're that, you know all those people that we're losing and all that diversity that we're losing. I think you know in general, there's been a bit of a boys' club type of mentality around the wine industry. Um, for a long time and um you know we just needed to start to challenge some of those conscious and unconscious biases i think that just been continuing and, and just start to call people out a bit more so you know things like in the wine judging scene you know that there, there was often um you know hardly any women judging um there was often on boards um we were very low representation um and it just um it was just getting ridiculous to be honest um and you know people seem to try to pretend that uh you know winemaking you must be you know 24 hours and you can't possibly have a family and you know you've got to be at the winery and or and it, to me sometimes that's just an excuse of um you know not being organized um and i just uh, yeah the arguments against having um, more women representation just don't cut it to me. So just making sure that people were more mindful. We created um, uh, the Diversity and Equality Charter um, just recently with the wine industry and have, you know, pretty much uh, majority signatories, I suppose, to that. And that really just talks about um, just making sure that, you know, when you are organising a, a panel for something that, you know, you've got diversity it just makes good business sense even if you know above everything else you know what you know whether it's morally right or all the rest of it it's it makes good business sense to have more diversity around the table for sure yeah it's uh it's the the beautiful thing about diversity is it's those different perspectives it's someone looking at something in a different way to what you're doing and i guess when it comes to progress and creating industries or businesses or communities or whatever it is that you want it to be having that diversity is instrumental to, to achieving that uh, it's key because it, it increases that step change you know like you, your your look your vision and then their vision and on top of it it actually creates a better thing so um and you know arguably the industry had been going down all these sort of strategic paths that you know a lot of um gents who are all well-meaning and all very smart people but you know they all agreed with each other because they all went to the same school and they've all got the same life experience and it maybe necessarily wasn't the best some of the best um policies for the industry as a whole so um you know i think that's probably key i want to jump into the that temp te it's in the production and viticulture end of um the industry 10 percent women representation and falling why is it still falling and, and how are you guys mitigating that today? Well, I don't know why it's still falling. I think um, I think part of it is you can't be what you can't see. So there's a lot of effort that we're putting in at the moment, which is what the Women and Wine Awards is, was about, was really about um, shining the light on as many women as we possibly could across the value chain in the industry. So, um, you know, the wine community has got plenty of, amazing women doing amazing things in it but the visibility of them um was lower and they weren't in the networks of all the people that were in power you know if you if you know what I mean and so mm -hmm. we just really wanted to make sure that we could shine as much light as possible on those um 
also going to the universities and talking. Um, and, you know, we did some surveys as well and shared those with the, that with the industry. Um, I tend to be, um, and, you know, obviously creating a diversity and equality charter. Um, and I think just making sure that uh, the conversations are being had um, and people are thinking about it you know, diversity in a, in a uh, much more front of mind type of way, I suppose. And, and you seem like, Karina, you'd be the person who calls a spade a spade. And I think when it comes to these topics, it's it's not one of the, it's not something we, we can dance around it all we want, but calling it for what it is, is how you, we can address it today and actually start to um, talk about how we, how we amend it. Is that, is that a fair assumption yeah. to make? Yeah, it's a challenge though because I don't want you know I didn't want to be that girl you know I suppose what's important to me is I don't want to complain about something and then not be part of the answer so you know I don't want to sit there and complain and then not and then when an opportunity comes forward to be part of that change and to help drive that change then you have to stick your you stick your hand up and 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 um, keep it going I yeah I it's difficult sometimes to call things out and. You know, I know it's challenging for some people who've done things, you know, this way for their entire lives and now suddenly they're feeling attacked, you know, that they're, the way that they've um, interacted with people is now sort of under attack and, um, you know, that's, that's tricky and some people, you know, react um, in ways you sort of don't really expect. Mm. So for me, it's just come back to the facts, you know. Here's the numbers. The numbers aren't good enough. Here's how better, how much better your business can be. Um, you know, if you if you've got better diversity in your business, in your industry, in your whatever. I decided, so you know, it's all just like facts, facts, facts. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the, I guess the myths and going straight back to the one you said about juggling everything comes back to organisation. How have you managed to do that juggle of kids starting a business, continuing to grow uh, the business, and then also all these different community things you're involved in? Um, I have put it in my brain that I'd rather have a happy, my kids would be better off with a happy mum who's, um, you know, still able to, you know, grow as a person and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that I've done it particularly well. My husband would be um, the first person to say that I don't cook enough for him. But, um, you know, he has been amazingly supportive. I suppose we um, share things. He's now, we've got a craft brewery business as well now in McLaren Vale. So he, mm-hmm. um, you know, has a fair bit on his plate as well. And we run a vineyard together. So, um we don't know if the balance is right, but, um, you know, having a family business, you know, at least it doesn't matter if you've got a kid with you and, uh, you know, when it was locked down um, here in South Australia, it was actually the end of vintage and uh, we, you know, ran, we didn't have as many harvests to drive and stuff. And next minute our 11-year-old is learning how to drive a tractor. So um, that was his homeschooling experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it is what it is. I think that I'm a better person when I am driven. So mm. having, having me, actually, since COVID, having me moping about the house, not being able to go anywhere has probably been a negative for them. They're probably like, mum, can you go overseas again, please? <laughs> <laughs> Next plane, you're out. Yeah. We're touching on a few of those challenges and, yeah, completely completely forgotten about the fires of a couple of years ago but but yeah I guess 
the COVID situation and, and you guys, but right now we're seeing kind of the challenges of it exacerbated where last year it was kind of getting through this year, we're seeing a, a mass shortage of um, backpackers, but also skilled labor in agriculture across every sector. Um, how, how are you guys going with that? Yep. Struggling. <laughs> pruning is in strife at the moment. So yeah, pruning's um, behind significantly for the region in general. Um, and we had the same problem with handpicking this year. So, um, yes, blocks that you would normally, you know, or, or the handpicking gangs who would normally, you know, pencil in two or three blocks, depending on the sizes, you know, per day, were really only getting through the one or two. And um, so there was a real sort of much slower um, handpicking production, um, losing more people along the way. Um, uh, it was, um, and same with, and then this year also the uh, people preparing for vintage next year for the wineries um, have struggled to get enough people, uh, are still struggling to get enough people in the wineries as well. Um, so, yep, it's impacting us for sure. And in terms of the flow on effects of, yeah, the, the pruning being behind, et cetera, what does that mean kind of towards the back end of your house? Uh, um, it just means that it sort of pushes out or in theory it pushes out um, the crop, the timing of, of cropping, but uh, it sort of, that all depends, you know, ideally it's, you know, we don't have a lot of frost risk or that sort of stuff here, but in other regions, uh, you know, if you, you, you sometimes want to prune lakes to avoid prop frosts and stuff like that, um, but this year you just haven't been able to, you just have to get, do it when people can get there, I suppose, which has been, yeah, a bit frustrating, but we'll yeah, see. Far out. The final question is around, um, it's Friday. So let's say next week you're heading to, heading to, the, to a local school, you're t- chatting to year 10 students and you, you get the opportunity to talk, to give them some life advice, but um, talking kind of specifically through an agriculture, viticulture lens, um, why is a career in the agricultural viticultural industry something that people should pursue, whether that's inside the farm gate or across the supply chain? Uh, I think um, that agriculture in general, but viticulture just provides so many opportunities. You know, you can really get your your teeth in at a um, sustainability level, at a you know soil and water level, at a you know, running sheep in your in your in your vineyard level um, or alternatives, um, it goes all the way through to the sort of tech side of things, and you know, all the techie special irrigation management and all of that sort of stuff. And then you get to create um, in the winemaking space and and the grape growing space. You know, you're creating a product that people really enjoy and a brand. And so, it, what I love about the and then, and then you're out selling, you know, and you're out showing your wares. I think it just goes, it's a it's a career that just goes across so many different spaces um, and um, it's never boring. Well, I don't know if you guys are feeling the same, but after that episode, all I want to do is head over to the McLaren Vale and check out some of the sites that Corinna mentioned. I hope you guys enjoyed that chat. I hope you're enjoying the Humans of Agriculture podcast as a little distraction, but also a piece of enjoyment in your week every Wednesday. We continue the Antola series next week 
But I've also got some pretty fascinating characters in the pipeline from up in Northern Australia. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and to stay in touch, check out our website, humansofagriculture.com.